From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Shuck. I love Mississippi. I love her people. I'm accustomed. I love and I respect our heritage. September 1962, Jackson, Mississippi. That was Governor Ross Barnett. Governor Barnett had personally blocked African-American James Meredith from enrolling at Ole Miss. Eventually, Meredith was enrolled. Violence followed, and 28 clergy, white, Methodist, Mississippi clergy, signed a statement born of conviction, opposing the white power structure and its racism. Joseph T. Reif, professor at Emory and Henry College, has written about, this time, these clergy and their statement, born of conviction. He's with me via Skype from Emory, Virginia. Welcome, Professor Reif, to Progressive Spirit. Good to be here. Well, tell me, how did you decide to write this book, Born of Conviction, White Methodists and Mississippi's Closed Society? Among other reasons, uh, the, the issue of the relationship of the church to the surrounding culture has really colored my sense of what it means to be the church since I was nine years old because in October of 1963 I watched a an integrated group come to try to worship at my Methodist congregation in downtown Jackson Mississippi and they were arrested simply because there were a couple of uh, black students from Tougaloo in the group and that you know, even at age nine, I knew there was something wrong about that. I knew that my Sunday school teachers had taught me that God loves everyone, and yet here in that same church, uh, these folks are being prevented from worshiping. This was the, a part of the church visits campaign that the Jackson movement started in mid-1963, and that made a huge impression on me. So I think that's one of the reasons. How, how, have, how did the white church in Mississippi deal with the race issue then, and what are the various ramifications of that? And certainly the Born of Conviction story and my interest in it grew at least partially out of that experience. Well, let's set this up a little bit. If we can talk just briefly about the setting and the statement itself. Uh, what was it and who wrote it and when? The statement was a response to the climate of massive resistance from the white power structure and most white Mississippi citizens in 1962 in response to especially the eventually successful attempt of James Meredith to become the first African-American student at the University of Mississippi. As you probably know, when he did finally move into his dorm on September 30th, 1962, was sort of hidden away. A, a riot took place on the campus. By the end of that night, federal troops uh, had come in to restore order. Two people had been killed. A bunch of federal marshals had been injured. And uh, James Meredith registered as um, a student that next day. The problem was there were a couple of things. One was that most white Mississippians refused to take any responsibility for the climate that created that disaster. And 
more to the point, there were some young ministers in the Mississippi Conference, and we need to be clear, at this point, it was just a white annual conference. There were black Mississippi Methodists, but they had a separate annual conference. And also, the Mississippi Conference was only the southern half of the state at that time. But there were four young ministers who were really frustrated that their conference leaders, their bishop, the district superintendents said nothing in response to what was going on, what had gone on at Ole Miss. And so they decided something need, needed to be said. So so that's why they wrote it. Uh, these four ministers, all of them young, got together, wrote a statement which basically expressed concern about the crisis, the crises that were going on. They, uh, they, they believed that they needed to speak as Christian ministers and as native Mississippians, and part of that was the typical white Mississippi response was, oh, this is just outsiders who are raising this ruckus, and people who know Mississippi know that things are great. They knew that there were white Methodists in Mississippi churches who were really anguished by this climate of massive resistance, but felt powerless to do anything about it. In fact, were afraid to speak about it at all in any public sort of way. And so they wrote this statement. The statement, if you look at it now, is not all that, doesn't seem all that radical, but the statement said four things. It, it basically called for freedom of the pulpit for ministers saying that the church belongs to God. It doesn't belong to the larger culture. It uh, basically quoted from the Methodist discipline a couple of passages that talked about how the teachings of Jesus don't allow for discrimination because of race and that uh, all, all people and all races are, are children of God. It uh, expressed uh, sort of affirmed support for the public school system and said that when desegregation of public schools come, comes, we are against any attempt by the state to use state funds to support private white-only schools. And finally, they said we're not communists, and that, that seems funny now, but Basically, the, the powers that be in Mississippi would try to quash any sort of dissent by using that C word. It was during the Cold War. The, you know, the sort of red baiting was often a tool that was used to, to try to put down and silence dissent. So that's what the statement said. Uh, as you had mentioned, the statement uh, does seem pretty mild from our point of view. And what, and it, it, but even then, uh, some of the authors didn't seem to think that it was uh, that strong. Uh, why did this statement make so many enemies? Well, I, again, I think it's the climate. I, I think that there were many people, those involved in the power structure and perhaps also a good many white Methodists, who didn't want any dissent to be expressed. Certainly from the sort of extreme segregationist view, the desire was for white Mississippians to present a united front. That was part of this whole closed society idea that, 
of course all white people are for segregation and would be against any race relations change. And so the fact that these ministers said anything at all publicly, they, uh, in addition to publishing this statement in the conference newspaper, they released it to the AP and UPI wire services. So stories about it ran the next day in virtually all of the daily papers in Mississippi. It got picked up on a broader scale. Eventually, the New York Times did a story on it, uh, really more on the response to it a couple of weeks later. So it got a lot of media attention. And this was not part of the program for segregationists. They wanted to continue the facade that all white Mississippians are on the same page and and uh, we don't want any change. If you are just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Joseph Reif. He's a professor at Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, and the author of Born of Conviction, White Methodists and Mississippi's Closed Society. Now, there were other statements by white clergy in the South during the civil rights period. You point this out in your book. Uh, the most famous, as you write about, was the one by the eight uh, white clergy in Birmingham who chastised uh, demonstrations by civil rights workers, and that's famous because uh, Martin Luther King Jr. responded to that letter in his letter from a Birmingham jail. And that's kind of the typical uh, narrative, uh, stereotype perhaps, uh, of white clergy. They were either racist or if not that, then afraid and uh, speaking from privilege. Was the Born of Conviction statement the strongest uh, of all the white clergy statements during that period? I think that's, uh, the, it's possible to, to claim that. That's an arguable claim. I think one of the more interesting examples that I found in looking at what other clergy said around the South was in a situation where in 1958 there were, I think it was a group of 37 African-American ministers in Mobile, Alabama, who issued a statement calling for the the full desegregation of that, that city's bus system following on the success of the Montgomery bus boycott. And what happened when they issued that statement was there were about 30 white ministers, close to half of them were Methodists, who publicly supported that call. And that may be, as far as the working across the racial divide and all, that may have been one of the strongest examples. There were attempts to respond to what happened in Little Rock in 1957 uh, would be other examples. But a lot of the statements were were fairly tame, were basically calling for law and order, uh, let, let's, let's follow what the Supreme Court says related to school desegregation. I think the reason why one might argue that Born of Conviction was the strongest statement is, again, because of the context in which it was issued. Mississippi, which civil rights folks saw as uh, the most difficult place, really, in the Deep South, and it was published at a time that I would argue was really kind of at the height of white Mississippi resistance. James Meredith had succeeded in entering Ole Miss. We're talking three months later. The next year, uh, Medgar Evers was killed in June of 1963. Freedom Summer happened in 1964. Cheney Goodman and Schwerner are killed in Neshoba County then. So the context, I think, makes it arguably the strongest 
statement issued by, by white clergy in those years. And as you look through those statements, this one written by 28 all-white clergy, uh, no African-American clergy to sign with them. I wonder if they might have even considered that. Um, were there ever any interracial clergy statements? The, the, the best example, I think, of interracial is that Mobile example that I mentioned now. Um, it's interesting that there was a, a statement issued in Dallas in 1958, which some African-American ministers participated in drafting, but then uh, agreed that they shouldn't sign it, that it would just be white ministers to sign it. I think in the, and you, know, you, could, you could criticize that, uh, question that perhaps. I think the reason why the Born of Conviction had no black participation and there probably wasn't any thought of it is really twofold. One is you did have this segregated structure still in the Methodist Church where all black Methodists were in a separate jurisdiction even though uh, they had churches in many most of the same towns that the white Methodists did. And part of what that meant was that there wasn't a whole lot of interaction between white and black ministers then. There are some exceptions to that, including one of the ministers who wrote Born of Conviction was good friends with a black minister in Gulfport where he served. But I think perhaps the main reason why they might not have considered involving some African Americans was that they really were seeking to speak to the white conference and I, I think their idea was we need to, as members of this organization, we need to say, hey folks, we need to take a look at what we're doing and what we're participating in. And it had some effects of these 28 signers, uh, the vast majority, had to leave the state uh, within a year or two. Can you talk a little bit about the reaction to their statement? Right. It's fascinating to me that because you have 28 ministers spread out across the whole southern half of the state of Mississippi, there was really a wide range of response. Three of the ministers were basically kicked out of their churches almost immediately. There were others who experienced ostracism. Uh, certainly some conflict in their churches as re, uh, related to this. And uh, many of them got anonymous phone calls, threats, this sort of thing. But there were also some ministers who did not get much negative response in their churches, or at least their church members didn't speak up uh, if, they, if they did have a negative response and in fact in some churches it really led to some some of the more frank conversation about race that uh, those churches had had and you probably ever. I also talk a good bit in the book about the fact that the way this story usually gets told that the 20 ministers that left had to leave. It's not really true in, in all of those um, situations. There were definitely six or eight of them that had no choice and, and left Mississippi because they had to. But there were other factors involved in the choices to leave on, on the part of some of the others, others including the, the political climate in the Mississippi Conference as a as a church judicatory unit and that sort of thing. Race was certainly involved in the decision, but uh, 
the, there were some who really had more choice in. And, and the other thing that I've said about this is that when when you talk about when people talk about this and say all these ministers left, they tend to forget the fact that eight of the signers stayed in Mississippi for the duration. Yes, and you know there seems to be a divide between the ideals of many of the clergy and those of their congregants. Not in all cases, as you mentioned, this uh, statement in some congregations led to uh, deeper conversation. And yet clergy seemed constantly afraid of their churches, and, and one could say, perhaps for good reason. But why, why is there such a division? Uh, was it the level of theological education? I think that certainly played a large role in it. I, one, one minister that I talked to about this pointed out that uh, people in his church sort of wrote it off to, oh, he went to school up north. I think one of the attitudes had in, in Mississippi at the time was, you know, there was this definitely us versus them thing, and the further away you could put the them, the more clear the divide was. But in fact, this minister had not gone to school up north, and what he joked with me about was that really his main awakening on the issue of race came at Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi, a Methodist school. So I think that that part of it just had to do with this attempt to hold the line in this oppressive cultural, you know, the, the closed society is the word that's often used to describe it. And uh, ministers who went to seminary were sometimes told things like, "Oh, you, you shouldn't go off to seminary. That they'll they'll ruin you. They'll they'll uh, make you too liberal. Uh, th- this sort of thing." So yes, I, I think definitely there was this kind of closed-in sense on the part of a lot of white lay people that they they didn't want anything bothering their. Their world, and uh, this also, I think, related to some tensions between Methodists in Mississippi and the larger church, the National Church, which was beginning to uh, make bolder statements about race. Then, Joseph Reif is my guest. He's the author of *Born of Conviction: White Methodists and Mississippi's Closed Society*. You tracked the lives of the 28 signers and of their families in uh, doing this work. To your knowledge, did any of the 28 ever regret writing the statement uh, and taking the stand they did? I don't think so, although it might have, uh, there might have been slightly different answers if I had asked them, say, a couple of years after, after it. One sort of interesting contemporaneous source that I was able to use was that one of the signers, Jim Waits, had actually sent a questionnaire to all of the signers in the fall of 1965, and about half of them responded, and I had access to those responses. And I think really all of the ones that responded still said, yes, I'm glad I did this. Uh, they, the, I think if, the, if they had any regrets, it had more to do with maybe we should have tried to involve more people in this than we did, that sort of thing. But I, but I, think, I don't think any of them regretted having participated in it. 
Well, what are some of the effects of this statement now over over 50 years? Has it been used at all as a model for clergy to speak out in favor of their consciences, uh, or did the reaction by uh, the racist power structure succeed in making clergy more reticent to speak out? Well, I think in the short term, it probably did. The, re- the conservative re- reaction probably did make many ministers more reticent. I think one of the standard responses that ministers who did not sign the statement in 1963 but may have been at least somewhat sympathetic to it, one of their standard responses was it it probably was ill-advised, releasing it hurt the church, that sort of thing. There were others that weren't asked who I think would have signed it if, if they had been asked. But over the long run, now that the story has been told, uh, I think it does serve as a model for expressions of courage witnessing to the, the, what is often an alternative view that the Christian faith offers. For instance, right now there are some ministers in the Mississippi Conference who are working on a statement to respond to House Bill 1523, which is, you know, which has been in the news quite a bit. Uh, the governor signed it, and it's a, you know, depicted as an anti-LGBT law, similar to the, the law passed in North Carolina, for instance. And they're certainly using Born of Conviction as that they are invoking born of conviction related to this. Interestingly enough, I I tell this story in the book a couple of years ago when Frank Schaefer, the Pennsylvania Methodist minister who had officiated at his son's same-sex wedding in 2007 and then was tried by his conference in 2013, when he told his annual conference that he wasn't going to promise to not do that again, basically, his conference sort of was ready to be shut of him, but a bishop, the bishop in the California Pacific Annual Conference, Minerva Carcano, issued a public invitation to Frank Schaefer to come be in ministry out there and invoked the memory of Bishop Gerald Kennedy, who had welcomed eight of the Born of Conviction signers to that conference in 1963 and 1964. So it is; it has become more of a model for people in in the last few years, now that the story is out. And you know, there's some interesting, as I'm reading the book, thinking of interesting parallels between then and now, different issues in many respects, but uh, the arguments are often the same. Uh, A red herring, you know, uh, I don't know if they use communism anymore, but... at not believing the Bible is one, or, or saying uh, things like, uh, well, you know, it's damaging to the church to deal with these issues. Yes, I mean, I, I think the church, one of the things the church has to decide is how, what's the difference between being the church and protecting the institution of the church? And often that's a difficult line to parse out. Uh, I, I think definitely some of the negative reaction to Born of Conviction in 1963 was a concern that this is going to hurt the church. This is going to uh, 
this is going to hurt us as an institution. In fact, the, the response that the bishop and the district superintendents made formally to Born of Conviction more or less said that, if you read it between the lines, that things are going great for the church, and so let's move on and do the work of the church. Well, the church has to decide if part of, the, part of its work involves making witness for the cause of justice on occasion, especially when uh, the church or people who claim to be Christian are saying and doing things which it believes go against the teaching and ministry and witness of Jesus. Uh, we just have about a minute left. Joseph Reif, my guest, born of conviction. White Methodists and Mississippi's Closed Society is his book about the 28 signers of the Born of Conviction Statement in 1963. So what was it like for you 20 years later to uh, be a clergy person uh, in Mississippi? Did you did you feel you had freedom of the pulpit? For the most part, yes. I had an interesting experience. My first two years out of seminary, I served in a very small town in East Mississippi. And I think I was a little worried about bringing up the issue of race. You know, the early 1980s was not the early 1960s. Things had changed some, maybe not as much as they should have. But about a month before I left that community, I preached a sermon in which I was much more honest with them. And it was basically by way of saying, this is what I've learned about being a pastor. And one of the things I said was, that I, I really have strong beliefs on this issue of race. I believe that uh, all we're all brothers. I mean, the, the typical kind of language that you use. And I, I wanted to come clean with them and sort of apologize for not being more honest. And the response I got from 99% of the people in those two churches was exceedingly positive. In fact, one of the leaders in the smaller country church said, you should preach that sermon on your first Sunday in your next church, you know. But I, there was still a little negativity, but I was leaving, so it, it wasn't that much of a problem. But I, I, I think that, and, and I have often asked myself the question, and people have asked me, do you think you would have signed Born of Conviction if you were a pastor in Mississippi in 1962? I was only eight years old but at the time, but I would like to think I would have, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very honest right there. Joseph Reif yes. has been my guest, uh, author of a very important book, Born of Conviction, White Methodists and Mississippi's Closed Society. Thank you for this work, and thank you for being with me today. Great to be with you. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Find more information and links to podcasts at progressivespirit.net. Progressive Spirit is free to radio stations and is available via the Pacifica Radio Network. Podcasts are available via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app. From KBOO Portland, I'm John Schuck. Be well.